So we're in the third week of a series called Blueprints where we're studying 1 Timothy and we're asking a series of questions about the church, what we're doing right now. Why does this exist? How does it function? You know, is there anything in the Bible that tells us how this should operate? Is there a blueprint? And uh, really, we have been looking and asking these questions. Here's why I think it's cool. You know, we've been doing this for 23 years. We've had some measure of success. You know, we started as a handful of people. and We've grown over 2,000. We have buildings and all these outreaches. And yet we're still asking the question. And I think that's good. Because I think we've tasted a little bit of what God can do. And remember, our vision is always so small. You know, God wants to do things that if he told us what they were ahead of time, we wouldn't even believe them. And uh, we've had a taste of this. You know, we, we sit out on the summer lawn and we look at all these baptisms. And then I hear all these personal testimonies of people that were lost. Now they got found and delivered. And I mean, all the stuff that we do throughout the year, you know, in this thing we call church is so amazing. We're like, Lord, we want to have more of this. You know, some of our young adults, like Laura on staff, came through our children's ministry, and we're seeing another generation. And what we're praying is, God, would you do this for another hundred years? You know, would this be the pillar and ground of truth for the next hundred years? And um, the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the mission of the church, going to all the world. We said the mission was more important than the methods. We've looked at what members, what they, how they function, men and women. Today, I want to drill down to the message, the uniqueness of our message. This is very important because no matter how you cut it, no matter what you think the church is, we are, metric cent we are message centric. In other words, our movement is all about our message. We have a message that the Bible says we should shout from the housetops. And so this message is critical when Paul writes Timothy, a young pastor. He writes several things, but I want you to look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, somewhere around verse 3. Paul says this is a good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith, and in truth. So we, we come to this part here of this record, and what Paul's saying is the message is what we're all about. You think about us as a church, whether we do missions or whether we sing or preach, all that we do revolves around this message that there's one God, one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. Jesus saves. Uh, I had the pleasure of listening to John Maxwell live this summer, and uh, John's been kind of a mentor from afar for me for my whole Christian experience. Read all his books, listened to podcasts, really loved to see what John, God's doing in John's life in his latter years. And if you ever listen to John Maxwell, he always talks about adding value to people. That's all he talks about. And his motto is God loves people. People matter to God, therefore we should uh, value people. John said two things he's learned in 50 years of following Christ. God values people I don't know, and God values people I don't like, so I value people. And that's a great model to live by. I have a friend who said, you know what? At 11 o'clock at night, if I haven't added value to people, I text someone. I just find a way to add value to people. But John hit me, hit me between the eyes this summer when he said, as Christ followers, as the church, as church leaders, he said, do, do lost people understand? Do they know that we're trying to connect with them? 
or do we think we're trying to correct them? It's a very good question. Now, I know for years we were trying to correct people, and that works in a Christian society, right? When people know right from wrong. We're in a postmodern society. We're in a post-Christian society. We are becoming like the Apostle Paul when he went to Athens and Corinth, where, where he would find common ground and connect with people. How many people know what we're against and not what we're for? They don't know anything about the love of Jesus and forgiveness of sin. They know we're against abortion, homosexuality, and a host of other things that only the Spirit of God can change their minds from the inside out. So with the idea that our message is critical, I want to I give you three things about our message that I hope will bring clarity in your life and my life and how we propagate the greatest message the world has ever seen. Three things. Please write these down. Number one, our message is unique because it's exclusive. It really is an exclusive message. Now, inclusiveness is popular today, hence the election, right? We want all roads to lead to God. We want everybody to feel good. We want everybody to be valued. Everything should be inclusive. This message is very exclusive. We just read in 1 Timothy, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for many. Now, let's put our honesty caps on just for a minute. Because we should be honest in church. That's very hard to defend. I don't know about you, but when I'm out and I'm telling people about Christ and trying to lead them to the Lord, outside of human suffering, why do bad things happen to good people? This is the second hardest thing to defend. Not because Jesus isn't the only way, because logic tells you, and people always give it to you like this, what about the hundreds of millions who have never heard or who will never believe? Are they destined to go to hell and spend all of eternity in a place of torment? Not only is that hard for them to understand, that's a bitter pill for all of us to swallow. And it should be a bitter pill. If you don't wrestle with that, I don't know what to say, because I do. If you told me only five people that ever lived would go to hell, I would wrestle with it. I would struggle with it. Because it's final. It's isolated. Jesus said there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you struggle with it, I am your fellow struggler. Let me tell you some other great men who have struggled. C.S. Lewis. For all the profound things C.S. Lewis said, he said, I think that every prayer which is made even to a false God or even to an imperfectly conceived true God is acceptable by the true God and that Christ says many who don't even think they know him. Dallas Willard, one of the great theologians, I've read all his books, said, I'm not going to stand in the way of God saving anyone. He said, I'm not going to say who God saves and can't save. I'm happy for God to save anyone he wants. Dallas Willard said, it is possible for someone who does not know Jesus to be saved. And of course, Rob Bell wrote a controversial book called Love Wins, landed him on Time Magazine on the cover, he says, millions have been taught that if they don't believe, if they don't accept in the right way according to the person telling them the gospel, and they were hit by a car and died later the same day, God would have no choice but to punish them forever in conscious torment in hell. A lovingly heavenly father who will go to extraordinary lengths to have a relationship with them would, in the blink of an eye, become a cruel, mean, and vicious tormentor who would ensure that they would have no escape from an endless future of agony. If there was an earthly father who was like that, we would call the authorities. That kind of God is simply devastating, psychologically crushing. We can't bear it. 
That God is terrifying and traumatizing and unbearable. Now, all three of these men have flawed logic. We don't have time to go into it. I don't believe they're universalists. You know what I believe they are? There are very brilliant men trying to figure out a very difficult doctrine of the Bible. And I think the mistake is trying to even figure it out. Because when you start to try and figure God out, we have finite minds trying to figure out the intimate. The intimate. Again, you know, if five people went to hell, I think it would be too much. Now, let me say this. Uh, the fact that these men can't conceptualize this type of God doesn't mean that he exists or that's what the Bible teaches. Scripture is abundant that Jesus is the only way. Jesus said it himself. I am the way to God, the truth of God, and I'm the life of God. All other men are robbers who have come before me. He said in John's gospel, I am the doer, I am the gate. And anyone who ever heard that would remember the tabernacle that was in the wilderness and later the temple. Uh, when we had a Bible tour in Egypt, we were coming out of Egypt and we were coming through the southern part of the Negev, so we were down in the area of the Dead Sea. And the Germans have built right there in the Sinai Peninsula a life-size replica of the tabernacle, one-to-one scale, gorgeous. And there was a German guide there, it was a woman, and we were all standing there. She said, now, uh, can you tell us the significance of this entrance? And of course, you know, we've been on a Bible tour for seven days. We're like, yeah, there's a door. There's one way to God. She's like, yeah, you're a great group. Uh, well taught. And it was a great imagery right there. There was one way in. Jesus said, I am the door. Made no bones about it. In the book of Acts, they said there's no name under heaven by which a man can be saved. Jesus is the way. Acts 16, how, do we be, how can we be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus, you and your household. So Paul tells Timothy, look, here's the message. There's one God, one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, let's just talk about one God. Because when this was written, um, kind of the rule of the day were many gods. The world was polytheistic. And probably in our day, outside of a few world views, uh, many people are down to one God, right? If there is a God, there's one God. There's probably many roads to him, but there's one God. Even Richard Dawkins, an avowed atheist in his book, The God Delusion, writes this on the inside jacket. He said, we are atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. He said, some of us just go one God further. You know what Dawkins is saying? Dawkins is saying, look, I'm a brilliant man. I've studied all world religions. I'm an atheist. I believe we're here by evolution. I, I believe we're here by chance. But if you had to press me, I would say there's one God, and I would say it was the Christian God. Tony Robbins, self-help guru, CEO whisperer, right, multi-mega millionaire. You would think that he would believe in transcendental meditation or something like that. He doesn't speak about this a lot publicly, but I have an article where Tony Robbins was asked about what he believed about faith, and he said at the end of the day, it's got to be Christianity. And they pressed him, and he, they said, why? And he said, evidence. Larry King said, was asked, you've interviewed almost everybody. Who's the one person from ages ago, if they could be alive today, you would interview? And he said, Jesus. And they said, what's the one question you would ask him? He said, were you virgin born? That would change everything. So there's tons of evidence for Jesus. The resurrection, four gospel writers, over and over. W.H. Lackey said that the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice 
and is exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three years of active, active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Three years. Changed the world. A weekend changed the world. We record time by it, B.C. and A.D., the year of our Lord. And yet some people will still come up and they'll raise this argument. Pastor Bob, are you telling me that a good moral Muslim who sincerely worships the God Allah will be sent to hell while a murderer who professes faith in Christ right before the execution will be saved? And I would say, yeah, if you phrase the question that way, yes. But can I rephrase it? That a Christian who is moral and upstanding who doesn't know Christ will be lost, and yet a Muslim who comes to Christ will be saved? See, here's the idea. I don't know what good means. I don't know what moral means. Because the Bible says we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Romans 1, 2, and 3 says the whole entire human race is guilty before a holy God. None of us is righteous, it says. No, not one. Christianity is not exclusive because we don't like Muslims or people from other faiths. Christianity is exclusive because it's true. And if you want to be inclusive, you're going to have to put truth on an altar because that's what gets sacrificed. 250 times the Bible uses the word truth. Jesus used the word truth. Over and over again, the Bible has evidence within itself to say that these things are true. And by the way, you know, Muslims and people of other faith, they're not sitting around saying, geez, how can we become more inclusive? No, they believe Allah's the way. They believe Islam's the way. And they should. Because once you start to add things in, once, once everything's possible, truth is gone. I'll give you an illustration. So uh, my first child was a daughter. Uh, and even though she was a daughter, I put her into every single sport, right? And I put her in Little League. Because in my town, they mix the boys with the girls at a young age. So I decided to coach. I go to my first Little League meeting, all these guys, real smart guys. We go through all the rules and everything. And at the end, the, the commissioner said, oh, one last thing. By the way, just so all the kids know it, every game ends in a tie. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> and I don't want to be a contrarian. I was the new guy in the box. I'm like, uh, can we just not keep score? They're like, no, 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 every game ends in a tie. And I'm like, well, even a six-year-old knows the probability of 14 games ending in a tie is, is pretty extraordinary, don't you think? <laughs> and you see what they were trying to do? They were trying to make everybody feel good, everybody included. No one loses. And the one thing that gets sacrificed is truth. The fact that Christianity is exclusive may be one of the greatest indicators that it's true. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know that you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is, here's your definition, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. It's not a place where kids sing nice songs on Sunday morning. It's not where you go to get baked goods and play bingo. This is the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, the illustration was wonderful. I've been to Ephesus. There's no ruins of the Temple of Diana. One of the seven wonders of the world, Temple of Diana, stood on a hill, had 127 columns or bulwarks holding it up. 
And Paul uses the metaphor there. He says, see that great building? What's holding it up? We, the church, no buildings. We are the pillar and ground of truth. This whole thing rises and falls on truth. Veritas, truth. Remember Pilate, what is truth? Jesus said, I'm the truth. Again, all-inclusive philosophies come at the expense of truth. Now, to me, the greatest illustration of this is one of the simplest chapters in all the Bible when Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. Most of you know it. Nicodemus is the ruler in Israel. He's not a polytheist. He's not a Muslim. He is one of the 70 rulers in Israel. Jesus said, you are the teacher in Israel. There's no one better than you. And they get in like a religious dialogue, and Jesus cuts right to the quick and says, you have to be born again. You need an experience where your heart is changed, Nicodemus. They go through, how could this happen? Nicodemus doesn't really understand. And then Jesus says this. He said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Put that in your memory bank. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, that he who believes in him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Paul told Timothy, there's one God, there's one mediator between man and God, and it's the man, not the God, the man, Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom for many. In other words, not only did Jesus come, and by the way, we know more about Jesus' birth than almost any religious leader ever born. Not only did he come, he gave his life. He was the serpent on the pole. He was the ram caught in the thicket. He was the Passover lamb. He was the veil that was torn in two. All through the Old Testament, it was bringing us to this place where Jesus would free us. And God desires all men to be saved, but there is one way. You know, if we had a cure for cancer tomorrow, if I had it in this needle right here, people would line up around the block. Nobody would be saying, oh, there's got to be another cure. There's got to be several cures. No, they'd all line up for the one cure. Now, what about this idea that, oh my gosh, we can't bear all these people that are lost? Spurgeon said this in a message called Heaven and Hell. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm going to give it to you. He said, some narrow-minded bigots think that heaven will be a very small place where a chosen few people will be there who went to chapel or church. He said there will be more in heaven that are among the lost. God says, and this is Revelation 4, there will be a number that no man can number who will be saved. He never says there will be a number no one can number that will be lost. There will be a host beyond all count who will get into heaven. And I agree. When we stand around the great throne of God in all of its glory, John said there is not a mathematical number I could put on that crowd. Isn't that wonderful? And see, here's the beauty, and get rid of all the arguments. How about this argument? He found you. He found me. Isn't that amazing? Well, what about all the people you didn't find? Don't worry about the other people. You hurt. If you're here today, you really hurt, right? The way I look at it is if God found me, he could found others. God loves people more than I do. I'm supposed to value people, but he values them more than I do. 
God desires that none would be lost, all that would be saved. Uh, when I became a Christian, there was a businessman I met. I respected him so much. And after a couple of months, we got around to talking about how did you become a Christian? Very logical man, very upstanding in the community. He said, uh, I was in a hotel room and I put on TBN with uh, Jim and Tammy Baker. Now, some of you are too young to know who they were, but she was, they were televangelists. She had the poofy hair and the makeup and all. And I'm like, no way. You're too smart. You would never get, you would never turn TV on own. You could never get saved watching that. People get saved with a message in a bottle. Uh, the thief on the cross with words written. I, I mean, it's unbelievable. God's shoulders are bigger than mine. How many of us in theory believe Jesus is the only way to heaven until a relative dies? Then we're looking for loopholes. And I've been there. And I get through it by thinking, oh my gosh, God loves my mom and dad more than I do. His shoulders are big enough. He's the potter, I'm the clay. Rob Bell said, if I was born in India, I would have been a Hindu and I would have gone to hell. Well, how come Ravi Zacharias and Dinesh D'Souza were born in India and they're two of the greatest apologists on the planet? What about the other 100 million Indians? I don't know about the other 100 million Indians. But I know the judge of all the earth will do right. I know that he called Abraham and he was an idol worshiper and he became the father of the faith. There's no limit to what God can do and he will judge according to the light that was shown. But our message is exclusive. Not only is our message ex exclusive, it is mysterious. Look at chapter 3 again. Verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. There's your cliff notes to the gospel, okay? Four or five lines. We all like mysteries, right? Well, was salvation mysterious? No, it wasn't mysterious that you had to figure it out. It was something that was hidden that now has come in the full light. So the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Great light has come. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, saw the mystery of godliness. He saw God manifest in the flesh. When he said, unto us a child is born, a son is given, his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, and upon his shoulders will be a government that will never end. Again, Luke gives all the details. We know almost nothing about Buddha, Christian, Muhammad. We know everything about Jesus, where he was born, how he was raised. And then it said he was justified in the spirit. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach. Spirit raised him from the dead. Remember Job when he went through all his suffering? He comes to a place where he can't figure it out. He's tried everything. He's talked to friends. He, he's looked for a mediator. He realizes God is too vast. He's looking for a human being that can answer his problems. And he says this classic verse of scripture, Job 9.32. He said, for God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Job said, I just wish I could have my day in court. I don't know why this has happened to me, but if God could sit here and I could sit there and a judge would figure this out, I, it would be great. 
Now, a lot of people still try and do that, right? They make a pastor, a priest, a rabbi, a mediator, and a lot of time that goes awry. Job said, I need a mediator. I need a human being I can touch and feel. You know that wonderful picture of Michelangelo where God is trying to meet Adam? You know, the picture's wrong because we need a mediator. And because we need a mediator, God became flesh. That's the message of Christmas. We just sang Hark the Herald Angels, right? That he was veiled in flesh, the deity was veiled. That was the veil, his flesh. That's the mystery of godliness. He took on a human body. Now this one kind of sums it up. Seen by angels, verse 16. Now we know angels drove Jesus into the wilderness. We know they ministered to him there. He could have called a legion of angels. But to really understand what, what this is saying, think back to Jesus calling his disciples in the Gospel of John, right? He calls Philip. Philip runs to Nathaniel. I found the Messiah. Nathaniel's first question was, where is he from? Strange question. A lot of people think he was asking the question because the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. That may be true. Where's he from? He's from Nazareth. Nothing comes from Nazareth. The next day, Jesus sees uh, Nathaniel and he said, an Israelite in who there's no guile. Nathaniel says, you don't even know me. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know you. Because yesterday I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel said, oh my gosh, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah who's coming to the world. Jesus said, because I saw you under the fig tree, you think I'm the son of man? He said, for now on, you're going to see greater things. You're going to see water turn into wine. You're going to see me walk on water, rise from the dead. Blind eyes are going to open. He could have said any one of those things. Know what he said? He said, the next three years, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I just picture everybody froze. Because every Jew worth their salt thought of Genesis 28, where Jacob was running from Esau. And he goes to the desert, and he thinks he's in a safe place, and he gets a rock, and he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. And in his dream, he sees a ladder going from heaven to earth. And God is above the ladder in heaven. And God gives Jacob the promise that he gave to Abraham. I'm going to make your descendants as the sand on the sea, um, on the seashore, and the stars in heaven, and this will be your land, so forth and so forth. And Jacob wakes up from that dream, and he calls that place Bethel, which means the house of God, and he said, because surely the Lord was in this place, and I didn't know it, and there is none other, this is none other than the house of God, and listen to this, the gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. This is the link between heaven and earth. And Jesus said, you're going to see greater things. You're going to see angels descending upon this ladder, just like Jacob saw. Do you know what Jesus was saying? God isn't in buildings. He's too big for that. Buildings represent something. The tabernacle, the temple represented sacrifice. God's bigger than that. In fact, anywhere you are, anywhere we gather, where two or more are, that is literally the place of God. God is there. And it's the gate of heaven. Jesus is the way. He came to be a ransom for many, and you're going to see the angels ascending and descending upon him. You see, most religions are climb the religious ladder and you might get lucky and God will like you. Christianity is God came down the ladder. Bono of U2 said it's still the greatest story in all the world. God, born in the straw poverty, came down, poorer than anyone, the bottom rung. No one could, no one could look 
down on Jesus. No one could look up on Jesus. A refugee born poor, born illegitimate, the way to heaven. Mysterious, but true. Our message is exclusive. It's mysterious. Here's the thing you got to take to the bank. It is rejectable. Our message, as great as it is, and as unthinkable as it is, can be rejected. A lot of people will say, well, grace is irresistible. One thing universalists and reformed people have in common is they think grace is irresistible. They think if God's grace, if the hound of heaven is after you, you can't resist. And if you say, well, what about this person who resisted? They'll say, well, he was never elect. It's kind of like evolutionists. They'll always tell you it's time and chance. Reformed people will always tell you they weren't elect or they were elect. But if you look at Scripture, if you look at what Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 2, he says, now, thanks be to God who always makes us to triumph in Christ. And he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are God's fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the rejectors were the aroma of death. And to the others, those who will accept, were the aroma of life. You walk in the room, they could be talking about karate, sports, partying, sex. The minute you change the conversation to Jesus, it's like cockroaches. You have the aroma of death. Others are like, I'd like to hear more about that. That's interesting. I never read the Bible. You have the aroma of life. But make no mistake about it. People can reject. That Later in that chapter, it says, even today, Jews, uh, when Moses is read, have a veil in their hearts. There's something blocking them. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus kind of showed us this in plain view. When John's disciples came and said, John's in prison. He wants to know, are you the one or do we look for another? Jesus didn't say, well, geez, go back and tell John. He leaped in his mother's womb when, when he heard about me and, you know, he baptized me. You know, tell this guy to come to his senses. He said, no, go tell John these things. The blind see, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, the gospel's preached. Go tell John the movement's alive, it's moving. And then he looks at all the people gathering. He said, what did you expect to see when you saw John? A reed blowing in the wind? No, you saw a man of conviction. You saw a man who was not of this world. And yet, you said he has a demon. John was an ascetic who preached a hard message. You said he has a demon. I'm the son of man. I came eating and drinking. You said he's a wine-bibber and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. My message was easy. You don't want to hear either message. He said, you're like children in the marketplace. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We played a dirge and you didn't lament. Because you really don't want any part of this. When people reject the message of Christ, they're not rejecting you. They're not even rejecting Christ. What they're saying is, I just want to live the way I want to live. And then people say, no, 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 if they could just see miracles to believe. No, Jesus went on to say, woe to you, Carson, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were done among you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. In fact, it'll be more tolerable in that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, because you sinned against great light. See, when the sower sows, it doesn't matter how he sows. 
It's not the method, it's the message. And there are some people who just love darkness. They just like their life. They like being the captain of their own ship. They love their sin. They're happy pagans. Now, we've got to connect with them. You know, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to find a way to, to keep preaching. You know, some people take 50 times. We just can't give up. But again, we have the aroma of life and death, and sometimes they reject. The one thing I know about Jesus is this. He was the end of all philosophers and naturalists. See, see here are, you, know, you can take all the great philosophies, right? You can take all the great nat uh, naturalists over here. But death ends it all for both of them. I don't care what your philosophy is or view of life, death is the end. Jesus took it one step further and came back. See, Nathaniel wanted to know, where are you from? Jesus said, I'm not from Nazareth. I'm not a Mary and Joseph. The son of man who descended was already in heaven. My father's in heaven. Heaven's my home. I've come to bring heaven to earth. I'm not of this world. And he got up on Easter Sunday to prove it. And it was the death knell of all philosophy and naturalism. So let me ask you this question. Why are we so ashamed of the gospel? It is the power of God on the salvation. It doesn't say it's your power. The Bible talks about the foolishness of preaching. It's a foolish message, right? But it's power. God's power is behind it. Oz Guinness in his book, Prophetic Untimeliness, said, at a time where we are trying to make the gospel more relevant, the church is becoming increasingly more irrelevant. We're knocking our socks off to be cool, right? We got preachers dressing like they're more fashionable than the guys on TV. And we're more irrelevant than ever. Because what we have to agree about is our message will always be relevant. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. It already is. Because the human heart has never changed. People are lonely, lost. They have questions about eternity, where they come from. They love their kids. They want to live forever. I mean, it's all the same. And the Bible, for thousands of years, has given the answers. Methods can change. We must change methods. But we still have the greatest message, the message of life and freedom. Robert Jeffers said the Bible offers absolutely no hint that salvation is possible through any other means than by faith in the person who was known by Jesus Christ and he himself said, it's his goal that none would perish, all that would come to life. Let me comment on one final thing, and that's for those of you who struggle with hell. There has to be justice. God is a God of justice. If someone murdered someone today, you would want justice. But oftentimes when we present hell, we present it this way, kind of like the movie Noah they just made, where when the ark closed and it rained, they were scratching to get in, and like Noah's booting them off, Right? We think that way about hell, right? We think, oh my gosh, all these people in hell, they're screaming to get out, right? They all want to be in heaven. The problem with that is the one picture we have of that scene doesn't look that way, Luke 16, where the rich man finds himself in hell. Not once does he say he wants to get out. In fact, the guy's still giving orders, right? Uh, Abraham, you know, there's Lazarus. He was my servant. Tell him I'm thirsty. Tell him to get me a glass of iced tea, you know? And by the way, go tell my brothers that they shouldn't come to this place. Nobody wants to come here. Never does he want to get out. Never. I believe 
that there will be no one who wants to know God in hell. I don't believe this is your life chick track, if you've ever seen it, where there's a guy in hell and they're playing like a review of his life and he's in church and the pastor's preaching and he's wondering what the score of the football game is. No one's going to say, oh my gosh, I was so stupid. I think anyone who wants to know God, anyone who wants to live with God, God will make himself known. He's the judge of all the earth. He does right. Salvation is all of God and nothing of us. We are just broken vessels. We are just a conduit. And we get this beautiful, beautiful privilege of seeing people come to faith. But at the end of the day, while we sleep in slumber, God is looking to and fro. And God will save those who want to be with him. And he'll save them through the man, Jesus Christ. You know what's great about our message? That verse we read in 1 Timothy, he's the man, Jesus Christ. And Paul said, of which I became a minister to the Gentiles. Our message is exclusive, but anyone can come. It's so egalitarian. All the Gentiles can come in. Every tribe, every kingdom. It's, it's not about one place at one time. It's universal. But there's one way. That's the message that we need to get out there. And it's urgent. And we need to be about our Father's business. And we need to shout it from the housetops.